morning. Um, I want to start by inviting children to Children's Church. Teacher will meet you at the back there. And uh, while they go, let's open a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, we are truly blessed uh, to be able to worship you. Uh, the, the throned and sceptered king, the, the one who reigns currently over all of creation. And we just heard it in, in uh, this passage, Lord, that the, all the earth is yours. And you are our God, and we are your people, and we are grateful. We are so blessed to be with you. So, Lord, I pray now that as we turn to your word, as we open your word, as we study your word, Lord, would you be with us to help us be your people in this place, to hear from what your word, what you have to say to us this morning. And, Lord, most importantly, to sink it deep into our hearts, to affect our minds, our will, our emotion, and our actions. Through the ministry of your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So um, we're starting now the third set of three uh, plagues in Egypt. And did you notice that today's reading was much longer? Um, all three of these plagues are going to be much longer than they had previously been. The, the narration is much bigger. Um, it's, I think it's because Moses is trying to build this crescendo. And so these last three plagues will be more detailed. And then comes the Passover. So he's kind of getting us emotionally built into this, this trajectory towards what he's going to accomplish there. Um, what we've been seeing is as we've been looking at these different plagues, we're seeing these not only God's judgment on, on Egypt, but also his mercy on his people and, and his pattern of deliverance. And what's been amazing as we go through these, we keep seeing these New Testament connections. It's, it's like God has one unified plan throughout history that he was always working on or something. This is how he delivers us. Um, we're going to cheat today because we don't have to figure it out. There's part of this that's quoted in the New Testament, so it tells us what it is. We'll just go there and say that. So um, that, that's going to be how it goes. What we're going to see in this, and I'm picking up a phrase from the book of Romans where it's quoted, is we're going to see God's purpose in election in this. So what I want to do is kind of look at this, the introductory portion and, and understand what he says there, and then I want to look at why hail. What does hail have to do with this? Uh, because the sign doesn't immediately jump off the page is really connected between the two. So that's what we'll do. So let's take a look at right at the beginning. Um, again, he starts, rise up in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. That is the way he's begun the first of the three groups of plagues. The first one is always rise in the morning and go to Pharaoh. So it, it tells us we're back into the next group. And what he tells them is, let my people go that they may serve me again you know, he's repeating this over and over again. He's got one demand of Pharaoh. This is all you have to do. But they're, they're not going to listen. So he says, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people. Well, what have the other plagues been on? I mean, hasn't it been, you know, a, a striking of Pharaoh and everything? Well, what he means here is this time, this plague is going to be extraordinarily personal. Whereas before, the, the flies would bother you and the swarms would get into everything and the frogs would interrupt your food and the blood in the Nile. You, those were all kind of disconnected from Pharaoh. This now will touch a person and kill them. This is now where God is ramping up. He's, he's building up to his crescendo that we'll see in the Passover. So he's showing exactly how hard Pharaoh's heart is. And, and the way he shows it, he says, this time I'm going to touch you personally. I'm going to hit something that, that is incredibly personal. It's not just going to be b flies bothering you. Now there's going to be death in your country. So he says, for by now I could have put out my hand. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He uh, jumped ahead there. 
Uh, this time I'll, I will um, uh, send all my plagues on you and your servants. Why? So that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. So if Pharaoh has got this idea of his theology from the Egyptians, then there's a God of this and a God of that, and, and, and he is the God who reigns, and there's a God of the sky and a God of the Nile and everything. And what Yahweh says to him is, there is none like me. I am unique in all the earth. I'm not like your gods. I'm not like your conception of God. I'm not like you. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring these plagues on you so that you may know I am not like other gods. I am not restricted by territory or domain. I rule over everything. So his purpose is that he may, they may know there is none like him in all the earth. You know, another way to say none like him in all the earth would be to say holy, utterly other. He is unlike anything else in all of creation, and Pharaoh must learn that lesson. So th that's his purpose. That's his goal is, is you will learn that I am holy. I am unlike anything else. So that's what I want to do. And now listen to the threat he brings. By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. So that's kind of an interesting theological question. Lord, if you're doing this in order to deliver your people, why not just on day one strike them all dead and then Israel just walks out? Well, there's a purpose for that. He says, I could have done that. Don't, don't forget, Pharaoh, I am powerful enough to, to have done that. I could have sent a pestilence. I could have sent some wasting disease and wiped everybody out and had Israel just walk right out. But that wouldn't fulfill my purpose. So it's within his power but it is not according to his purpose. So what is his purpose? Why do it the way he's doing it? He, he tells us right after that, he says he could have done that. He could have done those things and wiped him out. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. Why is it this Pharaoh on the throne at this time behaving this way? For this purpose, I have raised you up. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's not doing this in order to hide. He, he's doing it the way he's doing it in order that the name of the Lord may be known throughout all the world. As these plagues and these troubles fall on Egypt, the nations around them are hearing of that. And what they're learning is this Yahweh is not like any other God. He's, he's the God of these migrants, these people from, from Canaan and now they're in Egypt, and, and their God reaches out and touches even as mighty a nation as Egypt. I'm doing these things that my name may be known in all the world. This is why I'm behaving this way. For this purpose I raised you up. I did that. Now this is where we can, we can touch on the New Testament. The New Testament quotes that very phrase uh, of verse 16. And the context that's in is, is uh, Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul has asked the question at the beginning, why is it that not all of the Jews believe in Jesus? Why is it they haven't all trusted him? And his response is, well, it's not that the word of the Lord has failed. Right? So the, the promise to Abraham was that, Abraham, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And in your offspring, the nations will be blessed. And so when Jesus comes and a whole bunch of the Jews go, we hate him and kill him, Paul is asking, well, why, why is that? And his answer is, look, there's a reason for that. And it's not because God was wrong. And so the very next thing he says is, not all Israel are Israel. 
So doesn't this fit with our plagues? Remember the, the multitudes, the swarms, the mixed multitude coming out. What he's saying is he's, he's looking at the situation. Paul is looking at the situation he's in currently, and he's saying, why is it that part of Israel is not believing? Because not all Israel is Israel. And, and what do you mean by that, Paul? Explain that to me. Unpack that some. And he reminds me. He says, okay, let's, let's remember this. Abraham had two sons, didn't he? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the son of promise. God had come to Sarah and said, this time next year when I return, you'll have a son. And she laughed because she's like, I'm too old to have a baby. And Ishmael, who was born first, well, he was the son of flesh. That was when Sarah and Abraham said, well, we're not having the child God talked about, so we obviously have to step in and help. So take Hagar and sleep with her and have a child through her, and that'll be it. That's the son of the flesh. That's what they could do. That's all they could contribute. They did, and they wound up with Ishmael. But Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the one that God had promised. So what Paul is saying is, look, he chose to go with Isaac, and he rejected Ishmael. The next picture he brings up, he says, well, what about Rebecca, Jacob's wife, his, his favorite wife? He had two, but that was his favorite, right? She had two sons in her womb. Oh, I'm sorry, Isaac. Rebecca is Isaac's wife. Oh, I knew I was going to do that. Rebecca is Isaac's wife. She gets pregnant. She, is, she has twins. There are two children in the womb. And before the children are born, before they can be good or bad, before they can be godly or ungodly, before anything happens, God comes to Rebecca and says, the older will serve the younger. The reversal of what is expected. The eldest son is supposed to be the big one. He's, he's supposed to have it all. And God says, no. I have chosen, I have decided that the older will serve the younger. And so when they're born, there's Jacob and there's Esau. And then Paul quotes Micah, or Malachi rather, and he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So why is it that not all Israel is Israel? Because God is making divisions. He's making distinctions. Even within the covenant family, he's saying, I'm choosing this one, I'm not choosing that one. And then we get to Pharaoh. The next thing that Paul says then is he quotes this verse and he says, well, why is it that God chooses to harden some and soften others? And so the immediate thing that comes to Paul's mind is, well, look at Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh. He, he made his hard heart so that he wouldn't relent, so that he would go through all of these things. So it's God who chooses some and he doesn't choose others. And he's not constricted by the covenant promise to Abraham because he already pictured there is a covenant promise in Abraham of those who are of the promise and those who are of the flesh. So that's why John the Baptist, when he started his ministry, could look at Israel and go, oh, don't tell me, yeah, we're sons of Abraham, we're good. I'm here to tell you God could raise up sons from Abraham from these rocks. And he did. He did just that. So this is, this is Paul's approach to it. But what we can kind of get lost in is, is God is hardening some people. How unfair is that? Why would he harden anybody? Well, don't miss what's right in the center of that whole thing. He hardens him so that his name may be known in all the earth. So when God hardens somebody, when he says, I'm choosing this person, but I'm not choosing that person, when this person is part of the covenant and that person is not, it's not because he wants to send more people to hell. He's not restricting the number that he is the God of. He's doing those things to increase it. Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? So that, all, so that his name would be known through all the earth, so that it would echo through. So when we're looking at this, the, the, the theological image that's being painted here is we're being reminded 
that Pharaoh is resisting the Lord, that God has been doing all of these miracles and doing all of these things in him. And he's continuing to resist and continuing to resist. Now, Pharaoh's heart is a complex issue um, because it says, in one instance, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And in another place, it just passively says Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then there's a couple of places where it says God hardened his heart. So why is that happening? Why is Pharaoh's heart hard? So that the Lord's name would be known throughout the earth. Because there is none like him. He is utterly holy. So his purpose here is not, I hate Egyptians, and I'm going to kill them all. And we'll see that in the curse, won't we? There, there are people who hear the, the word of the Lord. They fear what's going to happen, and so they flee. So he's doing this in order to accomplish his greater purpose of filling that number of Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, not according to the flesh. So that's his purpose. That's his point here. But for this purpose I raised you up, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why I'm hardening Pharaoh. That's why this Pharaoh is on the throne. This is why this Pharaoh was knit together in his mother's womb. That's why this Pharaoh was actually born and saw the daylight. That's why this Pharaoh was raised in the royal house. That's why this Pharaoh wasn't killed by an angry brother. That's why this Pharaoh ascended to the throne instead of being assassinated by a foreign power, because God's raised him up. Why? Because he, wanted, he just hated his guts and wanted to damn him to hell. No. He raised him up, he put him on the throne in order that his name might be known through all the earth. So some people wrestle with that and Paul anticipates that. And so his response in Romans 9 is, who are you, O man? Who, who are you to argue with the potter, you big clump of clay? You don't get to talk back to him. He's not doing it because he's bad. He's doing it because he's good. So this is his method. This is his approach of doing it as he hardens Pharaoh's heart. So that's the, the, the theological premise that God brings up. And he says, you're still exalting yourself amongst my people and won't let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So that's the next question is, why hail? What does hail have to do with God's purpose in election? How does that tie in? Well, we got to back up and do a little metrology here. So where does hail come from? How is hail formed? Um, usually, by the way, it happens in the summer or in the warmer months. But in this case, we'll see because of the, the wheat or the, um, the produce in the field, it's probably January. So here's what happens with hail is the ground is warm and there's, there's a, a warm zone on the ground and it usually is picking up moisture off the ground. And above it, coming in very high, is a very cold front that moves in. And that very high cold front moves in, and, and hot air likes to rise and cold air likes to set. So as those two fronts meet, that moisture has been picked up, and it gets blown up into the colder zones, and it freezes. And now it's a little heavier, and it falls down. And that updraft from that warm air from the land pushes it back up. It goes back up into the clouds, picks up more moisture, it freezes again and falls. And then the updraft picks it up. And now you get some of those clumps beginning to bump into each other and clump together and it gets bigger and bigger until finally that clump of hail is too big for that updraft to carry and it falls down to the earth. Gravity takes over. A big chunk of ice reaches terminal velocity on the way down and hits the ground. Most of the time it's little pea-sized grains of, of, um, of hail. But sometimes that updraft is so heavy, so strong, 
that it can make this, the, the hailstones bigger and bigger. They have recorded them the size of grapefruit or softballs. Now imagine that falling from altitude. That's what God is picturing here. This, he said, you're going to have hail like you have never had in Egypt before. And he's not talking about a lot of those little pea size so that it's a couple of feet deep. It's killing people. It's killing animals. It's destroying crops. These are big, huge hailstones falling down. So now let's step for a second into the sandals of the Egyptians who said, yeah, we're not playing. We're not going to listen. They go into the field. They're out in the field with their slaves and their animals, and they're working the fields, and they're working on the harvest. And suddenly you see off in the horizon a big, huge, dark cloud. It would have to be a big, huge, dark cloud in order to produce hail at this time of year. It has to have a lot of moisture in it. It has to come in off the ocean and be cool, and it would be dark. And so as it's coming in, it meets that warm, moister air from around the Nile, and bam, they come together and they start churning, and hail forms. You know, the other thing that happens when you have these two massive air fronts mixing like that is the water molecules bump into each other and rub into each other, and they shave off free electrons. And so up in the clouds, there's all these free electrons floating around, and electrons have a negative charge. So now this, this big cloud has got this huge negative charge. Electricity doesn't like to be negatively charged or positively charged. It likes to be zero. And so as that cloud builds up, suddenly it lets go. Blam! Lightning comes flying out of that cloud and strikes the earth. Now, in the Bible, it refers to it as fire. Um, it's not fire. It's electricity. But did the Hebrews have any kind of concept for what electricity was? When you looked up in the sky and you saw this bright flash streak across the sky, and then you see where it hit the ground and there's fire, what do you think that bright flash might be? I, I would, if I didn't know about electricity, I'd say that's fire flying from the skies. So it's not inaccurate. It's not wrong to say it that way. It, it, is, it is now you're in the field and you see this cloud coming, and it's, it's this big, huge, dark cloud, and there's flashes of lightning and rolling of thunder as it's coming. And then suddenly it strikes, and these giant hailstones that you have never seen in your life pummel everything around you. They're killing cattle. They're destroying crops. They're killing people next to you. And you're out in the field. What do you do? You turn and run. Too late. You should have listened. The hail has now destroyed everything. And the rain comes, and the lightning strikes, and the hail continues on. So that is the experience of standing in the field, having not heeded Moses' warning to bring your cattle and your slaves and everything into the house. You're standing out in the field, and you are utterly lost. There's nothing you can do. That, that is the feeling of utter powerlessness. You can't run from it. You can't make it go back up into the sky. You're just stuck. So what I think the hail is beginning to picture, what it's, what it's trying to paint a picture of is God's wrath coming down. And, and I get that not just because I think it would be a cool way to tie it together, but the Bible speaks of hail as God's wrath in a couple of different places. Isaiah 30, 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire and a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. It pictures his anger, his, his mighty arm striking. Ezekiel 13, 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. 
great hailstones in wrath. So this is picturing, this is showing to them what is about to come. God's wrath is being poured out on them. And it shows up in these flashes of fire from the sky, this deafening roar of thunder and these giant hailstones pummeling everything around them. So what I think Moses is painting a picture of here is what we are saved from. He's, he's issued the call. He told the Egyptians, bring everything in from the field, draw them in, get them out of the field, or you're going to die. So the question then is, what does Jesus save us from, according to this image? What is he rescuing us out of? Jesus saves us from God's wrath. God saves us from himself. It's not from discomfort or um, you know, bad finances or whatever it is. God saves us. He has done something to rescue us from himself. That's what he's done. So that's this picture of the hail coming down and this, this withering storm wailing against the people who are still in the field. But it's not all of Egypt this time. Because Moses tells us, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slave and his livestock into the houses. So we have this picture now. Land of Goshen is spared. Remember when we talked about the land of Goshen, it was Israel, but it was also other people in there too. It was, it's a mix of people. They're spared. They're safe. And now anybody who hears the word of the Lord and fears the word of the Lord actually flees from the wrath to come. And those who blow it off and think it's no big deal, they're lost out in the field. They're stuck out there and the hail just gets them. It's, it's over. Um, one other little thing I want to throw in here. Um, I, I had a longer tangent and I cut it down because it's cool, but it doesn't fit. Is um, One of the most important things we can learn from the scriptures about weather is God controls it. God is in charge of the weather. So one of the poetic or imaginative ways that the Bible talks about that is that God opens these doors in heaven and he showers down rain or he showers down hail. Um, and so some people look at that and go, wow, that's, that's a primitive understanding of the universe. That's not how it works. Yeah, the Bible doesn't speak of it only that way. It speaks of it that way sometimes. But consider some of the other things it says. Zechariah 10.1, ask for rain for the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation of the field. Who makes the rain? God. Does he only open doors in heaven and throw it down? He made, the, the Hebrews knew it comes out of the clouds. They're not so simplistic to think that it's only you know, this, this picture of God opening doors and shoving stuff down. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11.3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. So they understand how nature works. They get that this, the clouds is what dumps the rain on the earth. Uh, Isaiah 5, 6, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So it's not a question of does God open doors and, and shower stuff or does the clouds just kind of happen? It is the clouds are what bring the rain. Who's in charge of the clouds? God. So this is how God could look at Pharaoh and say, tomorrow you will experience hail that you have never experienced before. Why? Because God is in charge of the clouds. Now, do you get the idea that God is holy? He's utterly other. He's not the God of the clouds only. He commands the clouds and they obey. He's not the, the God of the Nile so that he can turn it to blood and that's all he can do. He, he commands the Nile and it turns. 
He is the God over all. He wants his name to be known throughout all the earth because he is the God of all the earth. That's that picture that we get there. God controls the clouds. God controls the weather. God sends this stuff. This is the image that, that, Moses, or that uh, Pharaoh should be learning and is resisting so far. So it's time. It's tomorrow. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. So if Moses hadn't stretched out his hand, hail would be impossible? Nah. God has is, is used Moses to go to Pharaoh to make this pronouncement. He wants Moses, or he wants Pharaoh to connect Moses with God's command. So when he sees Moses go out and stretch out his hand, and in the next verse it says he stretched out his staff. Um, are those in conflict? How do you stretch out a staff? Generally speaking, you pick it up in your hand. <laughs> so it's both. He stretches, stretches out the staff and the hail starts. Now Pharaoh can't miss the connection. It's not a coincidence that the hail started. It, it started at Moses' command. And so there's flashing lightning and there's, there's heavy hail and it struck down everything that was in the field of all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and it struck down every plant and broke every tree. Actually, it says broke every tree. It stripped every tree, in, literally, in that. So imagine the trees being bombarded by this hail and it's stripping the bark off them. They're, they're not going to last. There's bark on a tree for a reason. And that's when he says, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. This is not a natural, normal event. Think about the land of Goshen. If it's the river Delta, like we believe it is, there's more humidity there than there would be further up north or further up the Nile. And yet that part just doesn't happen to have hail in it. This is not a natural event. This is supernatural. This is something that God has done. So that's, that's what happens. That's the story. The hail comes. And then what comes next? Pharaoh sent and called uh, Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is right and I and my people are wrong. What does that sound like? If you're reading this the first time, at that point, don't you go, hail and amen. The guy finally got it. That sounds like repentance. It sounds like he's saying, I was wrong. I confess I was wrong. This is not right. Um, Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You will stay no longer. <laughs> Pharaoh, can we get that in writing? <laughs> would, you, would you be willing to sign that and seal it with your, whole, with your, your uh, royal seal? Because we want to remember this, because the next thing that Moses says is, hey, look, I'll go out of the city and I'll, I'll pray and it'll stop. But as for you and your servants, I know that you don't yet fear the Lord. So how does Moses know that Pharaoh's repentance is fake? Well, because God has told him so far. I'm going to continue to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let you go. Um, how do we make that determination, right? We're looking at people and we're like, are they repenting? Well, the only way we can do it, short of God speaking from heaven, is time. So in this case, if we weren't Moses and we heard Pharaoh say that, what we would do is just go, great. I hope that's true. Let's see what happens when we try to leave the city. And, and we know what happens. He hardened his heart, and he wouldn't let it happen, and he's, he's done. He's, he's finished, or we're not going out. So what happens right in the middle of this is there's this parenthetical section. If you've got the ESV, it's in parentheses. Uh, verse 31 says, Then the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. 
So he's, he's looking at the field and he's saying, here's what's going on. Flax and barley are there. Flax was a really important um, uh, crop for Egypt. They used it for clothing. They used it for all kinds of stuff. And barley was a food staple. Um, they were in the bud or they were, they were blooming, but the wheat and the emer, emer is a type of wheat, um, were not yet struck down for they were late in coming up. So they're still in the ground, so they're protected. So why the parenthetical statement? Why the lesson in, in uh, agriculture here? Because, um, first of all, I think it adds that sense of eyewitness to it, is Moses stops and he goes, oh yeah, I remember, I remember what was in the field and here's what I saw. So it kind of adds that eyewitness thing. Also, Moses knows that the next one is going to be some locusts. They're going to be coming up. Um, so the locusts come and they eat everything, but I thought everything got destroyed. So Moses is saying, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I, I know what it said, but that doesn't mean all the crops had come up and were destroyed. So I think that's why he throws it in, is, is it just feels now a little bit more personal, like Moses is kind of reassuring us. Yeah, I got this. Let me explain it. You know, I, I know what I'm saying, but listen to this. So then Moses goes out, the thunder and the hail cease, the rain no longer pours on the earth. Pharaoh saw that the rain had ended, and so uh, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So that's the next plague. That's, that's the plague that we see coming. So what do we gather from this? Let's pull this together again. We've already got Paul's input on this, that God will harden some people and he will soften other people. Um, and the reason that he does it is not to be stingy because there's only so many seats in heaven or something. He does it in order that more people may hear and know. And what does he save us from? What is he delivering us from when he delivers his people? Because remember, the book of Exodus goes, God delivers us, God rules us, and then the last portion is God with us. What is he delivering us from? Well, it's a complex biblical image because he is delivering us from slavery. Paul talks about that in Romans. We are delivered, we were slaves of sin, but we have been delivered from that. We are now slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. So we've been delivered from slavery. What else are we delivered from? We are delivered from the wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, so we would flee from his wrath. You, you were all children of wrath, or they are children of wrath as you were, as we all were. So there's a point where we're under God's wrath, but he delivers some of us from it. And so that's the picture that he's painting in this curse, is that hail and, and the, the storm and the lightning and everything is just a minor little picture of what God's wrath will really be like. It's, it's used fairly consistently throughout the Bible. It's used often in the Bible to picture God's wrath coming suddenly and terrifyingly on people. Um, but it's not even close to what the actual wrath will be like. We can't imagine it. It will be furious. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, um, the land of Goshen is safe. We could be in the land of Goshen. We could be with those people. But also notice that there are people who are not in the land of Goshen who wound up being safe. There are Egyptians who feared the word of the Lord and fled. So here's the question. Which one do you want to do? Do you want to hear the word of the Lord and just poopah the idea of wrath? It's not real. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cool. Or will you do what he said, which is flee? Go into your houses. Head away from that. Be spared from the wrath to come. The key there is to fear the word of the Lord so that you may know the, name, the Lord's name throughout the whole earth so that you may see that he is holy. You do that by 
hearing and heeding, not by going, well, I'm bigger than you are, and I'll just leave my flocks and, and herds out in the field. And, and do you notice that the people, when they flee, they come into their houses, they don't just stick their head in the house, you know, to keep the, the hail from hitting their head, um, nor do they come only themselves into the house. They come into the house and they bring their slaves and they bring their livestock with them. So this is that picture of you've heard the message, you have heard the warning, flee from God's wrath, run to Jesus Christ. And so do you go, okay, well, I'll just put my head in. I'll continue doing what I was doing. No, that, that doesn't count. I, you know what? I will run into my house, but I'm going to leave everything else out. So I'll do what God said only for me, but, but the rest of my life, that's none of his business. I'll leave it out in the field. Not sufficient. It all burns up. It's all ruined. So the idea is, the picture that Moses is painting here is flee now entirely. Every aspect of your life, all of it, your investments, your future, your, your, your uh, income, your identity, everything, flee now into the safety don't leave it out in the field. Don't think that you can leave part of it out and it'll be okay. So this is his picture. This is the, 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 the threat of the hail. This is the, the, the picture that the hail brings on us, is this idea of God's election. There's an old poem by William Copper uh, that I think kind of captures some of the feeling of this. So it's not like directly commenting on it, but it gets that feel. So put yourself back in, in, the, in the field with the Egyptians and you see the clouds coming and you hear the thunder, and you can see off in the distance, there's something falling out of the sky, and it looks huge. And put yourself there and ask, now what do I do? And listen to how Copper says it. He said, my former hopes are fled. My terror now begins. I feel, alas, that I am dead in trespasses and sins. Ah, whither shall I fly? I hear the thunder roll. The law proclaims destruction nigh and vengeance at the door. When I review my ways, I dread impending doom. But sure, a friendly whisper says, flee from the wrath to come. I see or think I see a glimmering from afar, a beam of day that shines for me to save me from despair. Forerunner of the sun, it marks the pilgrim's way. I gaze upon it as I run and watch the rising day. The storm clouds are coming, and yet a friendly voice whispers, flee. And then God doesn't just say, flee. There's a glimmer of light, and he says, follow that path. So that's the picture that he's painting here, is he didn't just dump on the Egyptians. He sent Moses with a message of deliverance. Bring your people in from the field even now. Flee from that wrath that's coming. And then you can be part of the mixed multitude that's going to exit, the ones that are set free. The next two plagues, they're going to be a little longer also, but they're going to paint some really interesting pictures too. We're going to continue that theme of redemption even in the midst of judgment. There will be those who are judged and there will be those who are delivered. What do you want to, which one do you want to do? I'd suggest you flee into your houses. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you, your desire since the fall of Adam and Eve, through the story of the flood, through the story of Babel, through the story of Abraham and his offspring, and now in the story of the Exodus, Lord, your purpose, your plan, your point was to redeem a people to yourself.
that your name may be known throughout the whole earth. And so, Lord, thank you for issuing a warning. Thank you for sending messengers to tell people, come in from the field, take shelter. Wrath is coming. Lord, thank you for continuing that even now. And we see the deliverance is not in a shelter, it's not in a house, but it's in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that more clearly and more clearly as we go through these, these plagues that you brought on Egypt. Lord, I pray that we would see many more come in because it's your desire to increase the number who are saved, not decrease it. So Lord, please bring more people in. Bring them into the shelter that you have created. We pray for that, that multitude, that it would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. We long for that day, Lord, when we get to see the deliverance come. Until then, Father, I pray that you would give us faith, that you would keep our eyes tuned to that glimmer of light, and that it would illuminate our pilgrim's way. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.